Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Markets show. My name's Ian Smith. I'm the company's editor of the IC. Joining me in the pod today, we have Bradley Gerrard, our news editor. Hi, Bradley. How are you doing? Very good, thank you. Looking forward to the FT Christmas party tonight? Absolutely. Can you get your dancing shoes on? You know it. Well, look forward to that. <laughs> <laughs> I probably actually won't. <laughs> Stand by the bar. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, also in the pod today, we have Mark Robinson, our deputy company's editor. How are you doing, Mark? Uh, very well, thanks, Ian. I, I won't be attending this evening's soiree. You have plans of your own. Bigger fish to fry. <laughs> and none of the girls talk to me. <laughs> that is also true. Yeah. Um, and over in the studio, we have Graham Davies, our digital editor. Hi, Graham. How are you doing? Hello, Ian. Very well, thanks. You were at Nativity yesterday. How did it go? Uh, swimmingly, no, no tears. <laughs> did they find a manger? They did. Yeah, yep. sorted. It's all all done. sorted. Brilliant. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, let's kick off. It's not quite Christmas, so we can't get too excited just yet. Bradley, what have we got in seven days today? Um, Italian banks. That's been very much a kind of a topic of the week again. Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, um, coming off the back of Sunday's referendum, which um, the referendum was essentially about politics. It was not about banks as such, but the outcome of the referendum, which was a no vote, basically meant that recapitalising the country's banks was likely to be more difficult, even if only just from a sort of a willingness sort of of the market to do it. But actually, there was a report yesterday, anyway, that there's the potential for EU money to be tapped to sort of save the banks, and especially the bank called... Uh, well, I apologise if I murder this in Italian. But this, is the, this is the Siena Bank, yes. The Monte dei Paschi di Siena is particularly sort of debt-laden. It really needs sort of um, support from um, outside parties, investors. So a, there was a report yesterday that EU money could be used for that, and the, the share the price oldest, actually... Um, the oldest bank in Europe, by all accounts. It is indeed, yeah. Mm. Did you know the word bank actually comes from the Italian word for bench? Uh, well, this is true. Table, I think so, it is really away from this well, um, sort of <laughs> digression into the history oh, of uh, <laughs> Italian linguistics. Yeah, the, the, so the share price in Monte di Paschi di Siena rose ten percent yesterday, and it's up. It was up as much as four percent again today. So there's obviously a bit of belief that actually the European project is going to kind of stand behind Italy. And they're hoping to extend the deadline for securing a deal to the beginning of next year. I, I read that earlier. So yeah. yeah, there's still time to maybe get this fixed. And yeah, exactly. It's not sort of like a dead cert, but it looks like there's a bit more confidence, at least in the market, that sort of um, support of Italy's banks will happen. And that's incredibly important for a few reasons. One, Italy is obviously Euro- the Eurozone's third largest economy. And secondly, um, a lot of retail investors are heavily invested in bank debt in Italy. So it's a bit of a nightmare situation, isn't it? It really? is, yeah. So it, some. In the UK, if um, there were sort of what are known as haircuts instituted, so where bondholders get less of their capital back, that would fall on institutions. And arguably, it does filter down to a retail investor who's invested in a fund, but it's not so direct. Um, whereas in Italy, sort of, there is a lot of direct ownership of bank debt. Yeah, UK retail investors had banking nightmares of their own, but on the equity side. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, and uh, elsewhere in the news section today, one of the things that was talked about and garnered quite a lot of press coverage was the privatisation of the rail network. Is that happening? That's the big question. Is it happening? Well, obviously, it kind of is privatised to a pretty much already but obviously network rail is a slight curiosity in that it it does receive government funding about four billion pounds worth but it does also rely on things like its own commercial property so it it has sort of an element of independence where its income is concerned but it does rely a lot on taxpayer money so the proposals by chris grayling are, are quite sort of 
um, high level at the moment. The, the detail isn't sort of that precise. But what he's calling for is a greater working relationship between Network Rail, which essentially owns the infrastructure, so the, the tracks and stations, etc., and train operators, the likes of like First Group, Stagecoach, and Go Ahead are the, the listed players. And so the the hope is that, that that greater collaboration will lead to problems on tracks being fixed more efficiently. Because at the moment, if you're a a commuter or a passenger waiting for your train and there's a problem quite frankly you couldn't care less if it's a track problem or a train problem you just want your train there but obviously if network rail is trying to sort of um, prioritize work around the country i don't really know how it does that right now so obviously if there's a specific team for each franchise one would presume that work can be done more quickly um so the, the things that people are worried about when it comes to greater privatization of the the infrastructure as you say is that when you have profit-making enterprises more involved in that, there might be more cost-cutting or corners cut when it comes to safety. Do you think that is overplayed? Uh, it's very difficult to say. I mean, obviously, Network Rail was born out of the fact that Railtrack, its predecessor, was an entirely private company. And criticisms were levelled at that company that it was too focused on shareholder return and not focused enough on investing in its infrastructure. Some might even be extremists to claim that that actually led to some you know, derailings of trains and accidents. But... It's a very difficult question to answer. I mean, you've uh, pointed to Stagecoach that already has a similar kind of relationship with one of its. Yeah, exactly. Areas. I mean, the chief executive, Martin Griffiths. I mean, they, the Stagecoach had its results this week, and um, I obviously asked him about what Mr. Grayling had sort of proposed, and he said actually he'd been calling for this for many years. And um, on his um, Southwest franchise, his company runs. Um, there had been uh, a, a much closer working relationship with Network Rail. It, 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 he described it effectively as kind of a, a pilot, very much from Network Rail's perspective anyway. And that you know, he said it, while there have been some successes, there were definitely some frustrations for him as well. So he sees the benefit of it, but even he couldn't really... Um, point to sort of how actually it will work you know, he, he even he i think uh, at least publicly but I, I do think i don't think he actually does know any more detail yet as none of us do about how it will work i mean you know will uh, you know the cost of a franchise rise will listed rail companies have to part fund infrastructure will they have to employ network rail employees i mean there are just a litany of questions so will, for, will there be a limit to the public subsidy as well well this is it i mean the, uh, going back to Ian's, i guess your original question is that the privatization i mean that sort of roughly four billion pounds a year of money into network rail the government would probably like to not pay quite so much and the only way in which it can do that obviously is that the private sector takes on more of that burden so it's hard to see a greater involvement of the companies without greater costs for the companies yeah unless they get some part of that exactly unless some of that money that currently goes to network uh, rail is given to um you know train operators who when their franchises are renewed will be renewed in the future will likely include some sort of way in which they're going to have to have greater control or greater cohesion with network rail and greater ownership could be good of the infrastructure by the companies you know giving them that aligned interest to sort out it could well be it could if it does improve performance of the the general rail infrastructure then of course more people are likely to travel on trains and perhaps above inflation price increases won't be so controversial because the service will be so wonderful well and what happens to all these brownfields sites that are owned as well i mean would that go to the private would they go to the private sector because the government's made a commitment uh, with the cleanup of a lot of these uh, contaminated sites the government will come to the party on that so i mean private construction development would be looking at that uh, very jealously i would imagine yeah quite possibly possibly. yeah and and we also had results from stagecoach or first half results from stagecoach this week what are they telling us as a company that we've been a bit bearish on 
Yeah, um, we actually, it's pretty much almost a year to the day, actually, that we, we um, initiated our sell tip. It, it's been the right call. Um, what was the original rationale for that? Well, I mean, there were, there were a few things that we were sort of, unlike some of its rivals, it doesn't have quite as much US revenue, which has been a, a good thing. Like First Group has a bit more US revenue. That's partly why we like First Group. Um, and also the um, the length of uh, the franchises left for Stagecoach was one issue as well. Um, and all of Stagecoach's franchises, which there are three, I believe, I'm right in saying, they all come up for tender between now and 2018. And that's quite a short time in which to sort of rebid for tenders. And they are doing so. They are submitting bids as we speak and putting them together. But obviously that's now more complicated because they're going to have to factor in this potential new way of working. So we just saw that as a little bit of a risk. And, and actually... It, as I said, it has been the right call. Um, the shares were pretty much they were they were slightly up on on these half year results, um, but yeah, I mean none of the divisions um, recorded a, a, a rise in operating profit or margins. How about the buses? Yeah, the buses either. Um, the, the The outlook for buses. I mean, London buses are relatively stable. You also, you get paid per mile in London, so it's a different model. On on in the regions, it's it's quite tough um i mean there are some sort of i spoke to mr griffiths the chief executive and he was sort of saying there are places like sort of gloucester Cheltenham, and merseyside where everything's fine but in other regional areas places in scotland things are much tougher and obviously just generally we talk about this on the podcast a lot like the fall um in the number of people on the high street shopping because they're, they're shopping online more that has an impact on the amount of people who use buses and therefore revenue and therefore profit so it's 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 tough out there are you a bus user out there, yes, Mark? Yes, yes. I've got a, a very small carbon footprint, as you know. Great advocate of public transport. Actually, on that point, it was interesting. Within about 24 hours of the announcement, uh, the government also rejected uh, the Mayor of London's uh, proposal, Sally Khan's uh, proposal to uh, get TfL to take over the uh, suburban lines uh, into London. It was deemed unworkable. When I looked at it, I, c- I could see the government's point there. But it, it's a bit odd, really, because TfL has actually, have actually done a, a tremendous job on the underground, I think. Do you think that was a power play, really? It could well have been. It could well have been. But they, they did highlight some of the um, uh, logistical problems in terms of who, the point that Bradley alluded to before. Who's responsible for what? And is, you know, a suburban line coming in from Portsmouth, that, I mean, a line coming in from Portsmouth that is used by uh, commuters in London, is, is, is that part of the, the structure? Who knows? Yeah, no, that's absolutely fascinating. The point about Transport for London is interesting because um, the South Eastern franchise, which is going to be up for renewal relatively soon, Transport for London is actually going to be involved in sort of developing that for when it comes up for tender again. So... I, I think we could see them being a bigger player in more conventional rail as we, we sort of go ahead. Well, from a user perspective, you can make the argument that someone coming in from slightly further out of London sees themselves as very much part of the London integrated transport network. Well, this is true. This is true. But, I mean, it, it's just the demarcation is, is the point, isn't it? Very difficult. OK, well, watch this space. There's going to be plenty more on that. We love talking about trains in this country. Um, I'm lucky enough not to have to get an overground train into work, and I count my blessings on that one. OK, Another big story this week involved the spread betting companies. The FCA has waded into the market. Bradley, what's going on? Yeah, I mean, the, the share prices of a lot of the listed players moved quickly and significantly on the day of this paper, and the direction was downwards. So the, the FCA has done a lot of analysis on this market, and its, um, its sample of um, in its sample of CFD companies, it found that 82% of clients lose money on these products. And like these CFDs, contracts are different. You take a position, long or short, on any kind of asset price. You can leverage that bet, so you can have quite substantial losses as a private investor, and that's what they're concerned about. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you ever see these adverts on the internet or on the tube, there are always those warnings that you know losses can exceed deposits, and that. that 
that's the big issue obviously of the fca is that an investor can quickly find themselves in in trouble because as you say they can leverage up their bets and that obviously just magnifies their losses or it can magnify your gains but it works both ways and so that's the sort of problem so the fca is proposed and more um, often than not than not clients are losing money on those products well, exactly. according to this research as i just said yeah i mean they that that sample shows that in 82 percent of cases clients lose money so that is a big percentage and something obviously the fca is concerned about especially given the the levels of leverage which currently are um people are able to to you know, ramp up to well, the interesting thing the advocates of cfds or, or, or apologists really would point out that it's part of a mechanism for um price discovery but actually, it's, it's, it's like going to the, your local bookie, really. As simple as that. Yeah, I completely agree. I suppose to defend them, it's about... They, a lot of the advocates or apologists, as you say, talk about taking tactical exposure to certain asset classes or yeah. um, docs. But it seems like in the round, they aren't... Well, on average, they're not doing so well. And there are, I mean, there are some fund managers. There's, uh, I think it's the Throgmorton Trust at BlackRock. They actually... Part of their portfolio is using CFDs. So there are sort of professional investors who obviously do see a benefit in using them. But the FCA is obviously very particular concerned about the retail investor who is perhaps less sophisticated. So they've actually tiered the regulation they're putting on according to the experience of the investor, which seems like a smart move. Yeah, they are. So they're suggesting that um, retail investors with less than 12 months experience will only be able to have a maximum leverage of uh, 25 to 1, basically. Um, whereas now it can exceed 200 to 1 according to the FCA review. And and they will let if you have more than that experience, you'll get about you'll be allowed about twice that leverage. Yeah, I mean that sounds like a bureaucratic nightmare to me. But um, you know, tick this box if you've traded for more than twelve months. You know, everyone's just going to say yes potentially. I'm sure, these are very smart companies that know their clients very well, or, it, it, or, or you'd hope so. And we haven't found that. It, it's obviously a, a cheaper option as well compared to say covered covered warrants back in the day. So you know, it's got advantages in that regard. But in terms of our readership, you know, I, th- I think it's toxic, that level of leverage. You know. Yeah, I mean, it is bad. I mean, and, and so he's talking about the companies... That, um, Unless it goes well. And the, I mean, the companies that are sort of relevant to our readers, the listed players, the shares in all of them, IG Group, CMC Markets and Plus 500, all, all fell. And Numis actually, it lowered its rating on CMC to sell from hold. And it said it would materially reduce its forecasts. And it's also put uh, IG Group under review. So... Although um, a lot of the commentary and a lot of the um, responses from the from the companies I just mentioned was very much that you know we we we're obviously very careful who our customers are and the regulations are much more aimed at smaller sort of more nefarious outfits. It is still it's taking have, some of the heat out of it. Yeah, but it's still we have, have a, an impact on everyone basically. No, exactly right, and well, you can see that in the share prices, right? Absolutely. And we do have an example. I think Liberum put a note out. Was it in Japan where they bought in similar caps and you, you could. Obviously, you can see historically the impact that that had. So it looks like the markets applied a similar yeah. level of kind of caps to the share prices. We didn't see a massive rebound in the share prices the following days after the announcement. No, precisely. So yeah, there are, there is a lot of bearishness now uh, about this. Obviously, obviously, as I say, they are, these are proposals. The chances are, though, the majority of the proposals are going to get you know, pushed through because this is a something the FCA has obviously been spending a lot of time on. Bit nanny state, Mark? Um, no, I, I, th- I think I think it was. Um, we, we got to the situation we are because we didn't have enough regulation or tighter regulation. I think, and especially in terms of retail investors as well. I mean, as I say, people there are advocates of CFDs, but uh, I'm not one of it. At least in terms of our readership. I'm sure there'll be plenty more on that. Another thing in our news section is a recurrent theme, actually, which is bill to rent. Um, so we've seen one bit of news from a fund manager. It ties up with a result this week. Basically, Bradley. It's telling us that this is continuing to grow momentum on the back of strong institutional investor interest. 
Yeah, it's really interesting. Because obviously following the, the EU referendum, there was also one particular focus of market commentators was the housing market and what effect it would have on that sort of the confidence upon which people would want to buy a house or even sell a house into the market and that this could cool our sort of quite hot property market and that's potentially a concern for house builders because obviously the market slows there's less demand for new houses but this is interesting because now we've got sort of institutional pension funds effectively funding these sort of build to rent projects which in a way is kind of partly helping solve the country's big housing crisis but it also provides handily for them an income stream that they deem as exceptionally reliable especially Um, at a time when yields that you can get on government paper are low absolutely so and but the, the the other side of this obviously as a as a retail investor it's kind of difficult to get exposure to that exact trend through obviously an institutional pension fund but the house builders are obviously clear beneficiaries of this and one that we highlight in our um, news piece is Telford Homes because they actually had results this week and their chief executive John Stefano, said that this sort of project could well make up um, half of all Telford's business in the next two to three years so if there is any concern if you're a, an owner of a house building stock and you're getting a bit concerned about the market it's definitely worth looking into your your holdings sort of exposure to this type of trend which seems to be growing quite quickly i mean the house builders love it because it's forward funded by the institutional investors the project projects which takes away some of the risk for them and they so don't have the cost of trying to market them to sell them because they've already got a an owner effectively and i think i suppose the, one of the big questions with that kind of arrangement is how much will that impact on the margin the house builder can make and then one of the other things if you have a look at jones's story this week on telford in the magazine he talks about the margins that they expect to make on build to rent as compared to those on open market sales so as private investors you'll be able to start seeing what do you think is the impact of these kind of projects on profitability they have a slightly lower margin but they also mean you don't have some of the kind of marketing and sales costs that you have with traditional uh, house building exactly so it is lower margin but not sort of eye-wateringly so and um, yeah obviously the the desire as you, as you said earlier the fact that you know sort of these pension funds they, they need income to meet their liabilities and with you know sort of certainly development market government bonds being exceptionally low yielding this is a a nice sort of way for them to achieve some yields i feel like we should add some balance to the discussion (laughs) i mean historically why pension funds didn't want to get involved in these kind of projects is because there can be construction risk you wonder what would happen if the housing market deteriorates in the way that some people predict whether institutional investors will suddenly be less inclined to continue with these projects there could be problems down the line with this Um, and also I suppose government yields have ticked up and if you see a continuing increase in the kind of returns that they can get from traditional bonds they might be less likely to kind of plough money into this sector but I say it's one thing from my experience that you see with institutional investors is that they do tend to move in herds and if um, a certain pension fund especially one of the big name pension fund gets involved in a certain asset class you can kind of count on a load more coming down the track and this is kind of what we're seeing a little bit with um, legal and general investment management one of the managers that does it right exactly yeah i think you're absolutely right it's, you know, don't don't think to yourself this is a sort of a completely risk-free thing as you say there are risks to it but from a from a house building stock perspective there is less risk than the conventional projects they might build um, but obviously as you say i mean if a pension fund decides to stop investing in it 
obviously it can do that very quickly. Okay, well, we'll definitely keep an eye on that one. Just one more story that we have in the news section this week. It's actually a, new, a longer news analysis piece, Mark, that you've written on consumer credit. And you've looked at a really interesting kind of indicator which has acted in the past as a bit of a, a forward indicator, is that fair to say, on the consumer credit cycle? Uh, well, there's some debate whether it's a lead indicator or lagging um, with this one, but it's about restaurant openings. I mean, I got, a, I got in contact with the very nice people at uh, Hardin's London Restaurants because they'd released their um, annual figures on uh, openings nationwide and in the capital, and uh, it's it's another record this year. But I've tied this in. So a record number of new restaurants opened in the capital. That's right, yeah. Uh, both, I think, in gross terms and perhaps even in net terms as well. But there, there was there was a high rate of closures too. There was a high rate of closures during the year. But the, the, the reason I, I was looking at this is to try and uh, tie it in with a sharp rise over the last year in uh, unsecured lending as well and the uh, diminution of... Uh, discretionary incomes. People look at this as a, as a very crude measure just to see if the, the economy is overheating. Uh, and I've also included some uh, detail in there on the, the M4 money supply too. So consumer spending could be hitting a peak, buoyed by consumer credit. Is that well, what that, it could be telling us? Yeah, that's what it could be telling us as well. Um, and plus, it's, it's generally thought that uh, discretionary incomes are, are being con- constricted now. The level where we've reached a level where people will actually start reversing their spending patterns, we, we don't know. In fact, I, I wrote a, a similar article back in, in April, uh, and I was a, a little bit more bearish on uh, the outlook for uh, consumer spending then. But I um, obviously uh, underestimated the, the willingness of uh, the British consumer to put their hands in their pockets. But it, it, and of the central bank, I suppose, to reduce an interest rate. Well, well, this is this is true. I mean, it's it's a it's a completely new environment. We've never had this before. Where we've had this um, prolonged period of ultra low interest rates, and as you say, maybe that that's turning. But there must be a limit to the the amount of household debt that uh, we we can take on, and it's going to reach an inflection point at some stage. We're just not quite sure when. I mean, uh, again, this is not predictive in any way, but I did look at the M4 money supply, and it was interesting. We've, we've had a surge in, in midway through this year, but apparently it was due to the fact that... Uh, and that's no- and that's notes and coins in circulation. And deposits as well, I believe. Um, it's, a broad, it's a broader measure of the, the money supply. About midway through this year, it surged, but apparently this is due to managed money um, increasing their cash position. They're a little bit nervous post-Brexit. And, but actually, the, the last time this happened on, on this scale was just prior to the global financial crisis. Now, I'm not conflating the two, but it's just uh, curious that that was the case. There was definitely concern about, well, there has been growing concern about the consumer credit cycle and that after the referendum was one of the real concern points of concern and we saw some of the companies that were exposed to that um, lending sell off well actually some of them have kind of come back we've had that interest rate cut yeah and just the big question is how extended is this credit rate cycle going to be well i think the bank of england correct me if i'm uh, wrong on this one, Bradley, but I think the Bank of England c- came out and said that uh, unsecured lending increased by about 10.5% over the last 12 months. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was the fastest rate of increase in September, in, in the year to September, beg your pardon, um, since the financial crisis. So as you say, it's um, you know, obviously supported by these ultra-low rates and we just hit such a high level of um, unsecured lending that I, I guess this is partly a problem for the Bank of England as well. It kind of pens them in because even if the economy is okay, you start raising rates and on that amount of debt in the economy, it's potentially problematic. And one of the things that makes this 
cycle quite a lot harder to predict and also to predict the impact it will have as compared to the previous one is the types of credit that consumers have now, right? Yeah. Running into the financial crisis, it was yeah. largely mortgages and kind of predictable and you can tell what happens when it all starts to go wrong and obviously a lot of it did go wrong. But now there's a lot more credit, there's a lot more retail finance, car finance, there's a lot of different types of credit and that makes it quite difficult to say what will happen as the cycle starts to turn. Yeah, and there, and there were some, um, there were some uh, stats out recently from uh, S&P Experian in the United States, which uh, highlighted a slight rise in uh, consumer credit defaults across the Atlantic. That in itself doesn't mean an awful lot. But uh, again, we, we just have to, I mean, it, it's inconceivable that this will go on in perpetuity. It has to come to a point where people will start looking at their spending patterns. And we, we have just heard that the European Central Bank is going to continue its quantitative easing program and yet taper it slightly so the monetary situation is always changing yeah i mean i mean with that though the difference with qe that that money doesn't that that money hasn't flowed in into the general money supply i mean it's held for the most part on bank balance sheets so when we had you know the, the qe problems over in the states and here People were just thinking, oh, this is going to feed directly into inflation. But actually, what what happened? The money supply hardly changed at all. So, um, but I suppose it, it does impact on market rates. It does impact on market rates, certainly, which yeah. then do impact on credit quality. But yeah, the, 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 at that point, it's knock on and knock on, and we've seen with each round of QE it having less of an effect. I mean, I mean, there's a because it's been a, it's a highly competitive market as well in terms of uh, consumer credit, and there's there's been myriad deals out there as well um, offering sort of zero interest rates on and transfers as well, and of course, one day they're they're going to pull these things as well, and you and you'll be left with the principal, and that's when a lot of consumers will feel the pinch. Well, hopefully not yet with Christmas underway. Exactly. Um, okay. Well, let's talk about the main cover feature this week. Sadly, Alex Newman, uh, the writer of it, um, has caught the seasonal flu. Mm. Uh, but Mark, you're going to step in. This is something that we've been looking at as a trend for a while, and Alex pulled together a brilliant feature where he uses data and the the current industry narrative to tell a story of why we might start getting concerned about a drop in supply. So obviously we've seen an uptick in the oil price from the OPEC decision yep. and the kind of way that uh, the market can be manipulated by some of the players within the market. But he's saying or arguing that there is a longer term story, which is about an undersupply that could be supportive of um, the oil price maintaining its gains or even extending uh, further upward. Well, not only supportive, it could, it could lead to a to a spike, a short term spike as well. Uh, it, it's a really interesting piece. Uh, it, I, I only just read it before we we've gone to air here, but um, basically the the premise is that there's so much uh, long term investment, uh, hard investment, has been taken out of oil markets since the oil price slump. That this will uh, impact future conventional production. Um, Wood McKenzie have done quite a bit of research on this. Uh, the, the figure I think Alex uses is a trillion dollars in, in, in capex has been uh, pulled out of the market, and this, these are generally uh, long dated, uh, front loaded projects, the type of things that it takes years to develop uh, in conventional stocks, uh, and you can't uh, replicate this uh, or you can't replace this overnight. Effectively, what's happened is that the shale producers, the tight oil producers in the United States, have become uh, the swing, the, the swing suppliers in a sense. But Alex makes the point that you know, with all this conventional future production that's been pulled out of the market, overall demand is still growing, although the rate of demand growth has slowed slightly, but it's still coming still coming on strong uh, from the Asian economies. And at some point, once that reaches, as it 
gets towards equilibrium, we're going to see a, a price movement. And unless the shell producers are able to uh, rapidly build their production, you're going to have a, a shortfall in the market as well. And, and then, then we'd likely to see a, a major spike. We don't know when, when that's going to happen. We don't know if it's going to happen for sure. But, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a viable thesis, I think. Yeah, so so I suppose the yeah the risks to the to that thesis, as you say, uh, we don't know exactly how the shale, how much shale can scale up production, well, that's... And, and meet this supply deficit. But then also we don't know how much Shell and other major companies can bring back on projects. Well, that's that's where the difficulty comes in as well. Uh, some projects have been postponed, some have been cancelled out outright because i mean a, a lot of the a lot of the production uh, a lot of the projects have been predicated on an oil price of 70 to 80 dollars i mean for a number of years 70 dollars was was seen as the, uh, the benchmark to justify uh, capex of course that's that's fallen now it's n- no longer economical is it around 55 at the moment? Uh, well at the moment yeah I, i'd have to i'd have to have a look I, i'm not quite sure you know i'm not quite sure in in terms of profitability what what that figure is at the present time but it's obviously reduced and, and reduced markedly so those large projects they've been pulled out of the market and um alex, alex has, has looked at the shale oil uh, situation in america as well and, w- and what we saw there was um i think the number of um unconventional wells more or less halved once the, once the saudis started playing or opec started playing hardball to try and get that price down however what happened the actual production overall production didn't change that much in the united states and that's because they've become far more efficient in the operation of these wells and and that that has continued however alex makes the point as well that a lot of these were the really high quality uh, reservoirs or the ones that are easy to get at and a lot of these have been exhausted he also makes the point with conventional production again a lot of the mature the drop away in capex and opex as well the slight drop away in opex has meant that a lot of the mature fields are deteriorating at a faster rate than they would otherwise too which can be expected to have that immediate impact well you would you would expect that you were discussing at the start yeah exactly i mean as i say alex hasn't given it any dates or any indication that when he thinks this might happen but everything points to a deficit in the market at some point in the future. Now there's 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 variables out there. Of course, you know Argentina, for instance, could start scaling up their unconventional production. You've got Iran. Big question of how much they can increase their production. Well, by. they're part of the discussions, obviously, in the decision. Well, of course, and I, th- I think they want to get up by the memory so to about three and a half million barrels I think it was three and a half million barrels a day was was the, was the limit uh, but there's a school of thought that suggests that they've been exporting illegally during the, the time of the sanctions as well and that's continued so we're not quite sure on the overall How level the net impact on that I mean it was interesting that Shell have signed a deal to have a explore a few of the Iranian fields yeah yeah well this yeah that that, that was interesting I, th- I, th- I think the, the reason why this has happened is as well is that uh, uh, the the infra- infrastructure in Iran has uh, deteriorated you know quite markedly as well and so they're in a position where they have to get West Western expertise in as well both from the exploration and and well delivery uh, so we're We'd like, I think Tatal might be there also. I mean, we, we're going to see the usual names over there. In, in terms of the, the retrenchment, as you say, and the, the dialing down of CapEx and the sell-off of assets, if we look more broadly in the resources space and we look at Glencore, that's a yeah. company that's had huge cuts and sell-offs as it's tried to kind of refocus on its core business. But it's actually done the opposite this week and, yeah, and made a reasonably interesting acquisition. Well, oh, yes. sorry, stake. Stake, rather. Uh, as part of a consortium, the... 
the larger part of being the um, Qatari sovereign wealth fund. They've um, they're buying a nineteen point five percent stake in Rosneft. This is obviously um, this is a, it's a Russian state oil producer. Well, it's state, Russian state oil producer, and it's um, it's indicative of the fact that uh, Russia has been burning through its foreign reserves at uh, an accelerated rate because of the oil price and because of the the sanctions, the post Crimea sanctions, uh, and. Um, you know, we've got some history in that as well, Western uh, companies in investing in Russian assets too. But it, as you say, it was really interesting. I, I haven't, there wasn't an awful lot of detail released today. I think the overall investment is something like 10.5 billion euros, I think yeah. it was. And I think Glencore is putting up a, just a fraction of that. About 300, in equity, I think yeah. it was about 300 million. Uh, so the Qataris are obviously the, the main player. And I'm not quite sure who else is involved in that. So that it could be an opportunistic deal from Russia um, for the reasons that you've given and an opportunity for Glencore. I saw that it could support their oil trading activities so that's an important aspect. Of the yeah, deal that's it. And, and a plus... So it might not have to play into a broader theme of the strategy of Glencore. It just might be a good acquisition. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we need to get Sorry, a little bit... stake. Well, we need to get a little bit more detail uh, on what's happening there. But, I, I, you know, it, it is interesting just from the point of view that they've been hiving off uh, non-core assets, uh, trying to... Uh, get that debt rate down and uh, improve their uh, their working capital management, and 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 this is the this is the the polar opposite. But I think they're probably getting it in the right time in the market. But that, that's an assumption on my part. Well, we can return to that next year and see how it played out. Okay, well we're coming towards the end, but we might just mention a couple of the couple of the company results this week. The kind of pre-Christmas results season is finally starting to die down, giving us all some time to go and buy our Christmas presents and uh, drink our mulled wine. But um, Bradley, you've uh, reported on Britvic this week, uh, which had full-year results. Anything new there or just continuation of the same trends, the kind of drinks that we've seen doing well, continuing to do well? Um, yeah, kind of. It, was, it had a very good its carbonates business in the UK did very well. The, the shares of Britvic have kind of been under pressure really since the since since almost about the the time of the EU referendum. Not necessarily ties to that. I think I think it's just circumstantial in terms. It doesn't of Doesn't reflect in the numbers, does it? No, it doesn't. Um, but it's it's been a strange one. But yeah, they've um, they were obviously even mentioned um, by the former Chancellor George Osborne at the time of the, the when the sugar tax was being suggested as um, you know one that had reformulated a lot of their recipes that sort of thing and. That has been actually a slight bit of a problem for them because the, the the new sort of no or low sugar ranges haven't sort of fully cannibalised the sales of the old ones. So that's been a part of a problem in the stills category. But yeah, um, carbonates did particularly well, especially things like tango. in the sense that they haven't made up the lost sales. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there hasn't been a complete switchover, basically. Um, but yeah, um, brands like Pepsi, um, Tango uh, did did very well indeed, and so that's kind of helped. Um, the, the full year and um, the share to drives in the day so there seems to be a bit of um, a return of uh, confidence in the market about Brivik and they are selling fruit shoot all around the world they are now yes in the US in Brazil so yeah they're, they're sort of international expansion which is obviously important especially if the UK does implement a sugar tax although there is already one in Brazil but yeah, I think that that international expansion for all of the, the soft drink makers is important okay uh, Mark let's pick up one of yours Victrex put you on the spot Polymer. How are they doing? Well, the, the, what's interesting about Victrex, I think, is um, is that they're actually trying to diversify away from uh, polymers at the moment, at least um, uh, bulk polymer production, anyway, into more um, well, well, into areas that have better margins. Uh, they, they, they do. I mean, we mentioned the oil uh, sector, but they do these 
flexible subsea pipes is an area of you know that they're working on yeah that's right i mean uh, um, analysts um, are saying that the difficulty with this at the moment there's quite a lot of um there's a lot of capital that's being um, devoted to this part of the business and so in the in the short term that, that presents something of a, a drain in terms of earnings for the company but um well, you know, we we actually like the strategy itself. It seems to make sense uh, diversifying, and it, and it, it it's strange because it actually feeds into the general narrative with um, the, the large chemical companies who are moving away from bulk production into uh, specialist products, um, just moving up the value chain. Really, yeah, it makes sense. Um, a company also that you've reported on, RWS. If you are interested in a company that's uh, demonstrate consistency in its turnover and profit growth, um, I've seen you've written it thirteenth straight year. Yeah, growth. I mean, that's a pretty impressive record. Yeah. What do you think we can attribute that to? Well, it's it's just I, I've spoken to management a couple of times now, and it's just um, it's it's a, in a unique space in a, in a sense. It, it, it they deal in uh, corporate uh, translations, patents, uh, international patent patents, and um, it, a globalization play. It's a globalization play. It's it's a play on emerging markets. It's a play on China increasing its uh, technical technological abilities. It's a, it's an absolutely brilliant company, really. I I wish we'd have had it on a buy a few few years ago, but now it's it seems trading on twenty five times forecast earnings at the moment. So the market's in in agreement uh, uh, about the company. It's very difficult to actually. You would think it would be a high beta play in a way because uh, you would think that with uh, an increase. Any increase in economic activity, you'd get a, a complementary rise in in intellectual property. Uh, but when I spoke to management, they make the point that large corporations tend to be their their main source of revenues, and those corporations about the last thing they'll ever cut, uh, according uh, to RWS, is intellectual property. Even when there's a downturn in the market, because they've got one eye in the future, and they and they need to sort of they need to to, to sew up that. So I mean, it's a, it's a I would. I'd like to actually talk to them in a little bit more detail because it's a highly complex uh, company, as you can imagine. Mm. And they were just telling me some of the people they've got working for them too. It's extraordinary, you know. Um, but uh, watch this space. Watch this space. Yes. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Um, just to flag a, another couple of things in the magazine this week, uh, Chris Dillo is l- talking about why uh, there are fewer stock market listed companies in the US uh, than there were uh, going back a couple of decades. Uh, That's really interesting in terms of public companies, um, you know, decreasing as a proportion of overall companies. I wrote my taking stock column this week about corporate governance standards. And there's one view that, you know, the more regulation, the more difficult you make it for companies to be public and to be listed, the more private corporations, um, the more private companies uh, come to the fore or that becomes a good option for a manager um, and that's why uh, the uh, FCA are actually looking at bringing private companies under greater corporate governance standards or trying to kind of level the playing field between the listed and the private here in the UK at least um, so that's an interesting piece to have a look at in terms of well, there's history. some speculation this week as well that the uh, president-elect was going to take a a long, hard look at the regulatory environment in the US with the with a view to uh, relaxing uh, certain parts of that that's the hope on wall street, that's the um, hope on wall street. yeah and um, mark and i have written a piece actually about uh looking globally but also looking particularly at the uk about concentration amongst companies there's another reason why there's fewer of them because they're getting bigger and they're taking over each other mm. um and that kind of wave of MA we've seen since the 1980s and how uh, regulators have allowed the growth of these 
multi-sector companies and the impact that they're having. Um, and we've seen that across plenty of the UK sectors. Um, and just finally, to flag, John Barron has got his investment trust growth portfolio and income portfolio that he's looking at this week. And that's always popular, so do have a look at how he's getting on. Well, that's it. There's plenty more in there. £4.70 in all good news agents. Uh, we'll see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.